Well, good morning. When I was growing up, we had uh, parent-teacher conferences pretty regularly, about twice a year. And during these times, it was very fearful for me as a kid because you'd never know what your teachers were going to say of you. You never knew what the results of the report would be to your parents. And uh, they had 30 minutes to talk with them. They had this one-on-one -on -one conversation. And at the home, you're just twiddling your thumbs wondering, what is going to be said to me? They not only can talk about your work in the class, they can talk about your attitude, the areas you need to improve on, uh, any behavioral issues or problems you've caused in the class. Uh, and then they had an additional category on the back just for anything else that didn't fit in the original categories. And it was the most terrifying time of the year for me, just to think of what would be said of me. But as I was thinking about that, I thought to myself, what if Jesus Christ were to write a letter, were to write a report card, giving an account of Calvary Bible Chapel? What would he say of us? What would he say is our strengths or the areas that we do well in? What would he say are our weaknesses or our shortcomings as a church? How would he describe the work that we do for him? How would he tell about the attitude that we have for our work or what about our behavior? How would he describe that? What encouragements would he give us? And what corrections would he give to us? You know, it would be a wonderful thing to hear what the Lord would say about a specific church and his evaluation of us as a congregation. But at the same time, it would be a very sobering thing because he knows all that goes on in the hearts and the minds of believers in this room. And even though we don't normally see letters written directly from God, there was a time when Jesus wrote specifically to seven different churches in Asia. And this morning we're going to be looking at one of those seven churches. It's in the book of Revelation and it's called the Church of Ephesus. But before we jump into the Church of Ephesus and the letter that Jesus wrote to them, let's remind ourselves what the book of Revelation is about. <clears throat> so the book of Revelation, it tells us in the very first verse that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole purpose, the whole theme of the book is Jesus revealing himself to us through what the Apostle John saw. And if you remember, the Apostle John is the author of both, or of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and as well as Revelation. He labored in many years in Asia Minor, where these seven churches that were receiving these letters were. And if you remember, he was exiled by the Roman Empire, by the Roman Emperor, to the island of Patmos, where John received these visions from Jesus Christ. And he recorded it all in this book of Revelation. And these divisions describe three things. They describe, one, what John saw, the things which are, which is, describes the church age, and we're going to be looking at that this morning. And then also, the things which will take place after this. So we said that there are seven churches receiving letters. We're going to be looking at one of them. Well, who are all these seven churches? Well, these are seven actual local churches that existed in what is now modern-day Turkey. And the purpose for these letters being written is twofold. They communicate and address issues and literal needs of a church. And they also re reveal uh, two different, or seven different types of individuals throughout the church age. And it instructs them in God's truth. And although these are literal churches at the time, there's also a spiritual significance for the churches and believers today. Each of these seven churches has its own personality, if you will, or its own unique strengths and its weaknesses. 
And there's a distinct message being given to each one of them. And the Holy Spirit not only spoke to these churches at the time, but he's also speaking to us today. And we know this because the concluding statement that we see after each of these seven letters says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So who is he who has an ear? Well, that includes all of us in this room. We all have an ear. So that means that this word of the revelation of Jesus Christ is just as applicable today in 2017 as it was when it was written to that literal church in Ephesus back in 96 AD. So that's just a very brief summary of Revelation. There's a lot more to, on that, but let's just jump in now that we have that context of the book of Revelation to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, and we'll begin in verse 1. It says in verse 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the first thing that we see in verse 1 is this phrase that says, To the angel of the church. Now who is this angel? Well, the angel is an angelic being who represented one of these seven churches. And each of these seven churches had an angelic being representing it. However, it's, it's important to notice that Although this letter is being addressed to these angels, the content isn't written just to this representative. It's written to the entire church. And we said it's written to the church of Ephesus. So what do we know about Ephesus? Well, we know that by the time the gospel was preached there, there's over a quarter million people living in Ephesus. It was known for its flourishing commercial and export center throughout Asia. It was an incredible city with massive stadiums, theaters, marketplaces. We also know that Paul had ministered there for three years. We know that in his absence, he had left behind Aquila and Priscilla to continue ministering there. We also had Apollos, an eloquent speaker, well-versed in the scriptures, teaching them while in Ephesus. We also learned that as a result of these brothers and sisters coming to Ephesus, that many were saved and the gospel was heard all throughout Asia. And if you look uh, at the history of Ephesus, they were notorious for practicing magic. And when they trusted in the Lord and they heard the gospel for the first time, the first thing they did was they took all their books of magic, worth 50,000 pieces of silver, and they put it all into a pile and they burned it. 50,000 pieces of silver of magic just burned away because they didn't want anything to do with it. They wanted no part of that old lifestyle, no part of the sin that they were associated with. And it got to the point where uh, Demetrius, a silversmith, was so upset with them, what they had done, that he feared that they were becoming a, uh, a hindrance or a, um, 
yeah, hindrance to his idol-making business. They felt that there, this change in the church and what Paul was doing was causing him to go out of business. And he was fearful of these things. But that just shows how much they loved the Lord, that they were willing to just abandon all these old things that they used to do. We also see that even uh, Timothy came to, came to Ephesus and he taught them on uh, false doctrine and, and the ones who would come in to come in and, and take them away from the truth of the word of God. He's warning them about that. We also see that even John, the writer of Revelation, was in Ephesus for a time. And the reason I bring up the history about Ephesus is for two reasons. One, I want you to see that the reason, uh, I want you to see that the teaching they received was abundant from the different saints that come. They had Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, Timothy, John, Apollos, all these saints ministering to them, rooting them in a firm foundation to start off their church. They had a bunch of gifted men and women teaching them in their early years of the church. And secondly, I want to show you that they had a fervent love for the Lord when they started off. They forsook all of their ways. They didn't want any trace of the sin in their life. They didn't want any trace of this magic that they had at one point. And now that we've looked at this history of Ephesus, let's look at what the Lord has to say to them in this letter. It says in verse 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And when I read this first part of the verse, I, uh, I have a lot of questions. I say, who is he who holds the seven stars in his right hand? Who is that he? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So then the second question I have is, well, who, is the seven, who or what is the seven stars? And who or what are the seven golden lampstands? Well, we actually find the answer to that in the immediate verse right before this. And it's found in Revelation 1.20. It says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So here we have the seven stars, which are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches of Asia. And it's interesting that the Lord would choose a lampstand to represent his church. Because we know that in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, he says, You, speaking of the believers, are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He's referring to his church as a lampstand. We are the light to this world full of sin and darkness. Our testimony and our witness shines throughout for the whole world to see that we are followers of Christ. We also see the number seven being used. And it should be no surprise to us because the number seven signifies completeness or perfection. And it's no wonder that we see it all throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. And it's being used here as well. And I want, in this, in this next part of it, I want you just to think about, in this verse, where the Lord Jesus Christ is. Because it paints a beautiful picture of his position in the church. And sometimes we see introductions of our first verses of a book or a chapter, and, and often we just glance over it. But 
it shows a beautiful, beautiful picture of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. It says that he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He's the head of the church. He's at the center of all that goes on. He's in his proper place. Let us never forget that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. That is his rightful position that he deserves. And more than that, it shows that he's intimately involved with what's happening in his church. And he's able to compassionately encourage us and correct us as he sees fit. And it's also interesting, too, that he has a unique message. If we were to go through all seven of the letters, we'd realize that each church has a unique message. He doesn't just lump us all together. He knows the strengths, the weaknesses. He sees each church at its own pace where it's at. And he gives them instructions according to their current status. And also notice that he's holding in his right hand the seven stars, which not only just shows his, his power and his control, but it also shows that he's securely holding them because they belong to him. It's a beautiful picture, and if we just glance over it too fast, we'll miss it. But there's these nuggets throughout uh, the book of Revelation if you take the time to really examine each one. So what would you say if tomorrow you went down to your mailbox and you open it, and you receive a letter that's addressed personally to you. And as you open the letter, the first line of the letter says, I know your works. I know what you've done. I know your deeds. I know your motives. I know your thoughts. I know everything about you. Would that scare you? Would, would you be fearful of what that letter would say? I would. <laughs> or would you just laugh it off and say, who could ever know my works? Who could know my deeds? Who could know my thoughts? I'm the only one who knows my deeds. You could think, who could even make such a claim to know me? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ says to the church of Ephesus, I not only know your works, I know your motives, I know your intentions, I know your thoughts, I know everything about you. He is the only one who can accurately make this claim and truthfully judge the works because he is an all-knowing God and a righteous judge of all the deeds of mankind. And although sin and corruption can be hidden from the eyes of other saints, it's not hidden from the eyes of the Lord. He tells us, in fact, in Hebrews 4.13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Everything is known before the Lord. There's nothing hidden. If you think back to Adam and Eve, when they took of that fruit and disobeyed God, it says that after they took of it, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Did they think that the Lord wouldn't know where they had gone or what they had done? He knew everything. He knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what they had done. And he's telling the church of Ephesus here, I know your works. And you can just imagine as, as this letter is probably being read out loud to the congregation, just this long pause of, what is the Lord going to say about this church? What is he, the all-knowing God, going to say about the deeds of this church? So he starts off in verse 2 by saying, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. What a relief to hear these initial words. What an encouragement as a church to be hearing these first words from the Lord. Jesus knows what this church is doing right. And he's telling of its labor for the Lord, its patience, or its steadfast endurance for him. You know, it's one thing to have uh, like men tell you that you're doing well as a church, to tell you that you're really going on strong for him. But to hear it come from the lips of the Lord, 
There is no one better or truer to hear it from than him. What an encouragement to start off the letter with. And he goes on even further to say that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. When Paul made his visits to Ephesus, he had warned them about evil men. Men teaching false things that would come into the church like savage wolves, wishing to draw believers away from Christ and to themselves. He tells them to be on guard. He gives them this final warning in Acts 20, telling them to watch out for these kind of men. He says, Therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock which is among, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to, the, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So based on their commendation from the Lord, the Ephesians heeded the words that Paul had taught to them. They had earnestly listened to the warning that he gave them. And when false prophets did come into their midst, they did not bear them. They did not put up with those who were evil. They wouldn't tolerate their teachings. And they were not pulled away. What a commendation to receive from the Lord. Faithful at applying what Paul had taught them. And now the Lord is mentioning it for everyone to hear, everyone to see. Churches thousands of years after this to see that they were faithful in not taking in false men, false teachers. And if the Lord was that concerned in the days of Ephesus about false teachers, how much more so is he concerned with it still today in 2017? We have to be like the church of Ephesus in our examination of those who say that they're disciples of Christ and to test to see if they in fact are followers or if they're savage wolves wishing to pull us away from the truth of God. We have to be on the lookout for them. And if we do say them, may it be said of us that we cannot bear those who are evil. The letter goes on in verse 3. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Even though their task was difficult, even though their labor ahead of them was going to be tough, it says that they labored patiently and demonstrated godly perseverance through it all and did not become weary. You know, many churches have fallen apart because of false teachers. Many have seen, uh, many have had um, men come in disguised in sheep's clothing, but in reality they were savage wolves. And not many can say that they endured all this with patience and that they persevered through it all. And it tells us, in fact, that their labor of work was not for their benefit or any personal gain of their own, but rather it was for the namesake of the Lord. The Ephesian church did all this for the Lord and they did not grow weary. You know, as I think back to my report cards that I received, I often thought to myself, this doesn't accurately represent me all the time. Sometimes when you turn in your papers, they don't always see all the effort that you put into it. They don't always see what went behind the scenes, the blood, sweat, and tears that you put into it or that you didn't put into it. And they also don't see my attitude while I was doing it. They didn't see the amount of difficulty it was. They only see the final product of it. And I never liked report cards just because I felt as though it wasn't an accurate representation. 
But praise God, he isn't like that. He takes notice of everything that we do. All of our work. He knows our attitude. He knows everything about us. And aren't you glad that he's the only one who's able to give a truthful and accurate account of how a church is doing? He, he not only knows how we appear to everyone else, but he knows the hearts and the minds and the thoughts of everyone in this room. Jeremiah 17.10 tells us that I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. He's not forgetful to reward us. He's not forgetful to overlook our actions. He's not subjective. He doesn't miss something. He sees all sides of the matter. He's fair. And he's just in his judgment of a person. And in case you think today that you've done things for the Lord and you've, you've labored for him and he's forgotten about things that you've done or it's, people don't notice it, he gives us his encouragement that he remembers it. He tells us in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Nothing that you do for the Lord will go unnoticed. He keeps a faithful record of it all. So up to this point, we've been examining the church of Ephesus and the Lord's been commending them on their work, on their patience, on their labor. However, the Lord has something against this church. He takes notice of something that they need to work on. Something that's hindering them from fully serving Him. And He tells us what it is in verse 4. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Jesus has taken into account all the church's work, all of their labor, all of their attitude. But He says, Nevertheless, or in spite of all that, I have this against you. Which means that you can excel in all these other areas, but this thing against you cannot be outweighed by your work, by your faithfulness, by your labor, or your perseverance for the Lord. Jesus said that they left their first love. It's not a small issue. The love that they once had for the Lord has grown cold. I want you to realize that without love, we are nothing. We can have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge of the word. We can have faith, as we learned about a few months ago, that's so great that we can say to mountains, move and it moves. We can give all of our possessions to the poor. We could become martyrs for Christ's sake and be burned alive. We could speak with the tongues of men and of angels. But if we don't have love, we have nothing. And none of it matters. Love is like the fuel or the motive for all that we do. And if you take love out of the equation, you have nothing left. Which is why when Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, you've left your first love, it's a huge thing. The church who had started off so strong, so enthusiastic for him, their love for the Lord was missing. They were lacking in the most crucial area of it all, love. The affection that they once had for him had died down. The enthusiasm no longer there. And although they were sound in doctrine and they were active in service, the motives for their actions were not rooted out of love for Him. And maybe you're here today and the Lord's reminding you that you've left your first love. Reminding you that you served Him faithfully, that you've given financially, that you've been hospitable, that you've shared the gospel, you've been faithfully serving Him, but your motives are not out of love for Him. And if that's where you find yourself today, then listen to what the Lord has to say next. Because he lays out so clearly what are we are to do 
if we find ourselves in this situation. He tells us in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So the Lord tells us three things to do. He says, first, remember from where you have fallen. Secondly, to repent. And third, to do the first works. First, to remember where you have fallen. This is the first step, which means to remember how you used to love the Lord. Remember that passion and that zeal that you had for Him? If you're a believer here this morning, I want you to remember and think back to when you realized just the seriousness of what the Lord had done for you. When you realized that you were a sinner destined for hell and the Lord saved you from that. Do you remember that day when you trusted the Lord? I do. I remember when I was nine years old, I got saved and I was so excited. I picked up the phone book directory. I called everyone from A to Z who would listen to my phone calls at 9.30 at night. And I just went through the whole thing just to tell everyone how excited I just trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I made the greatest decision of my entire life. There is nothing better that can happen after this. I made the best decision. Whatever comes after this is unimportant because I just trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember going to school the next day telling everyone, guys, guess what? I trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to know how you can too? I remember so excited for Sunday looking forward to sitting in that front row to hear what the preacher had to say so that I could take notes and I could absorb it all. I remember wanting to spend time in his word and listen to what he had to say. It was so exciting for me. But think to where you are today. Since that time when you trusted the Lord, has your love for him grown stronger and stronger each day? Or has that fire for him gone cold? Do you still love the Lord as much today as you did when you first got saved? And I'll be the first one to say that as I read through this passage and as I was preparing for this, I felt so convicted by what the Lord was telling the church of Ephesus. I realized in my own life that I do not always love the Lord as I should. He is not always the first priority in my life. But I want you to think to yourself, I want you to seriously consider your love for the Lord this morning. Seriously consider where you're at when your love for Him. You know, you can't pretend with the Lord. You can't fake to love the Lord. He searches the hearts and the minds of all people, and He knows where you're at in your love for Him. Is there something else in your life that's interfering with your love for the Lord? You know, there's a lot of other loves out there. There's a lot of other things that try and pull us away from our love for Him tries to pull away that place that he only belongs to as number one priority in our life. And some of these other loves are just plain and simply sin. Some of them could be the pursuit of all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of which will fade away with this world. However, there are some loves that are more discreetly hidden, some that are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but when they take the first priority of our love, then they're wrong. And this could include things such as placing your family time or your, your relationships with others as more important than your love for the Lord. 
a career or a job, wanting to be successful in that career, wanting to continue climbing up that corporate ladder, wanting to get that next position or that next title, is that more important than your love for the Lord? It could be um, wanting to be successful at school or or, uh, just being successful in general. Is that more important than the Lord? Money, is getting that next paycheck, that next dollar that you think will satisfy you, is that more important? Is that where your heart's at? as more important than the Lord. Sports, do we care so much about who's on the roster, how many yards per carry, what their batting average is, how many, uh, what's their shooting percentage? Is that more important than our love for the Lord? TV shows, movies, do we binge watch shows and movies and focus on fictional characters when we have the true and living God before us who wants to spend quality time with us, but that's more important than our love for the Lord? Social media, do we spend time on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all these things, are these more important than our love for the Lord? If you're honest with yourself, do you spend more time on all these things than you do with the Lord? You know, how you spend your time each day, just examining the hours you spend on things, is indicative of how or what you truly value. It shows what you care about. And although these other loves are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, when they take the first place that belongs to the Lord, they are wrong. And that means that we've left our first love. So if you find yourself in this situation, listen to what the Lord has to say next. He says to them, repent. Turn away from these loveless ways and turn back to the Lord in the manner where He is the number one priority, where He's at the center of all that we do. He's pleading with this church to return to him before it's too late. It's not enough to just feel sorrowful and say, you know, I I really, I notice I do. I do spend more time on these other things. The Lord really isn't number one priority in my life. But I just, I don't know how to make him that priority. You know, it's just a phase of life I'm going through. No, it's not just a sorrowful feeling. Repentance is when you have a genuine change of heart and mind that results in a change in lifestyle and behavior. It means to cease from all other loves that are taking the place that the Lord has and place Him as number one priority in our life. So, so far He's told us to remember where you have fallen, to repent, and now He says, do the first works. Jesus is telling them to not just to repent, but to demonstrate true repentance through your actions. You're telling them, go back to the basics. Go back to the very first thing you did when you trusted Christ as your Savior. He's asking them to reflect on when they first fell in love with the Lord. Remember how you used to spend time in His Word? Remember how you used to pray to Him? Remember how you used to share the Gospel with others? Remember how you used to enjoy being with other believers? Go back to that. Do the first works. You could think of it as a, or in a uh, marriage relationship, In a healthy relationship, you want to spend time with your spouse. You want to learn new things about them each day that you didn't notice before. You want to eat with them. You want to go places together. You want to be on date nights together. You want to just share life together. If I had a wife, and one day, she just said to me, I don't want to eat meals with you. I don't don't care to hear how, how your day went. I'm not at all engaged in this conversation. 
I don't really want to talk with you. And she just didn't show me any signs of affection. You would look at that relationship and say, there's something very wrong with that relationship. There is something that is not right with that. And you'd be right. Well, the same thing is true about how we, if we respond that same manner to the Lord, the same thing would be true as well. And whether you realize it or not, when you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you entered into a personal relationship with Him. And He longs for you to read His Word, to pray to Him, to obey His commandments, to look to Him for all things. He desires your praise and your worship. And He desires that you share the love that He has shown you to others. And if we're not doing these things, then we have a serious problem and we're not demonstrating our love towards the Lord. So how do we express our love to the Lord? What does doing the first works look like? Well, some of the ways that we can demonstrate this is through keeping His commandments. In 1 John 5, 2-3, it says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. By obeying his commandments we show that we love him. We have our master who's told us how to live our lives, how to obey him. And by following his word we show that we truly do love him. We can also show our love to him by putting him before everything else. He tells us in Luke 10:27 Jesus, so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The idea being that we have this fervent love for the Lord, not withholding anything. We're loving him to the absolute fullest degree that we can, because he is the first place in our life. We can also show that we love him by loving our brothers. It says in 1 John 4, 20, it says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. If we don't even love the ones around us, how can we say that we love God? So we demonstrate our love for him by loving the ones that are just immediately around us. We can also demonstrate our love by giving to him through service, through our time at this church. If there's ministries, we show our love by giving up part of our lives to serve him. We can also give financially to him, serving him with, he's given us our jobs, our careers, and we can give back financially to him with the little that we do have. It shows that we love him. We can also demonstrate our love by spending time with him in, our, in his word. He's come to this earth to die on the cross for us. He paid the penalty for us, and he wrote this 66-book love letter to us, and he wants us to spend time with him each day. And we show our love to him by reading and learning about him more and more each day, by growing in his word. We can also demonstrate our love by praying to him and giving him praise for the things that he's answered in our life, for the things that he's done, for how he's brought us to this point in our lives. And we can also trust him for the requests that we know are just a prayer request away. These are just a few of the ways that we can demonstrate our love for the Lord. And we do the first works. But now he gives a stern warning to those who do not repent. He says, Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place 
unless you repent. Jesus is telling them that if they don't repent, then the vitality of the church of Ephesus, which is signified by that lampstand, will cease to exist. Their testimony will die out. This church that was once so on fire for the Lord will cease to be effective for him. The church would be brought to ruins unless it repented. And the Lord is pleading with them to repent of their lack of fervent love towards him. Their first love. I want you to think to yourself as I ask these next few questions. Just answer truthfully to yourself. Why do you come to church? Why do you serve the Lord? Why do you share the gospel? Why do you read the word of God? Is it a box that you check off in your mind? Is it so that others will think highly of you? I pray that we'd never forget that our true motivation for all that we do is rooted out of a love for him based on the love that he's already shown us. It says in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. We love him because he demonstrated his love for us on the cross when he died. Out of the abounding love that he has shown for us, he came into this world and suffered and died. That's why we love him, because he first loved us. We sing a song uh, called, How Can I Help But Love Him? And it goes, the first verse of it says, Down from his splendor and glory he came into a world of woe, took on himself all my guilt and my shame. Why should he love me so? How can I help but love him when he loved me so? How can I help but love him when he loved me so? And as we reflect on what the Lord has done in our lives, it's hard for us to not find a reason. It isn't hard for us to find a reason to love the Lord. There's so many reasons to love him. So he goes on in verse 6 to give another commendation to the church of Ephesus. And his commendation is likely to, to give him an encouragement after hearing these past verses. And he tells them that of what they do have, of what they're doing well on, what they're excelling at. He says, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It is not clear exactly who the Nicolaitans are. We do see them again in the same chapter in verse 15, in a section that deals with immorality and idolatry. But we do know that God, who is love, his very being is love, he hates the sins of these people. He cannot tolerate their sin. It's not acceptable in his sight. And in fact, in Psalm 97.10, it tells us that you who love the Lord hate evil. He's telling us that as ones who love him, we are to hate evil. God approves when a believer has a godly hatred towards sin. And here, the church of Ephesus hates these people's sin. And they're excelling in this area, so he gives them encouragement and their zeal for the hatred of these evil deeds. And finally, the Lord wraps up his letter to the, seven, the first of seven churches by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In case anyone thinks that these things so far have not been applicable, in case anyone thought this was only for the church of Ephesus, he makes it clear that anyone who has an ear, which includes everyone in this room, 
Let him hear the things which are written for all to hear and take heed what the Spirit of God is saying to these churches. And he's concluding with this promise of a reward for those who hear the words of the Lord and take action. He says, To him who overcomes, referring to those who overcome the coldness of their heart and their lack of love demonstrated by leaving their first love. He says, To those who overcome their coldness, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And this tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God refers to entering into eternal life in heaven with the Lord Jesus forever. And this doesn't mean at all that we're saved by overcoming. It's as far from the truth as it could be. Because we know that we're saved by grace through faith. Instead, what it's saying, it's saying that as a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, overcoming demonstrates the reality of our salvation. In fact, 1 John 5, 5 tells us, Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The only one who can overcome and enter into this eternal life are those who are truly saved. Those who believe that they are sinners condemned to hell. Those who believe that before a righteous and just God, they cannot do anything of their own to save themselves. That Jesus Christ came into this world a sinless Sinless God, to die for our sins, to pay the penalty that we rightfully deserved, and that out of his abounding love, he died for us. And through faith, we believe that. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you've never truly experienced a first love. You've never experienced a relationship with God who is love, whose very character is love. And he longs for you to turn to put your faith in Him, to trust Him as Lord of your life and as Savior from all the sins that you rightfully deserve to be put to death for. And if you've never trusted Him today, may today be that day. Salvation is waiting for you. Trust Him today if you haven't made that decision yet. And as for believers at Calvary Bible Chapel, if the Lord were to write us a letter today, I pray that He would tell of our stance against false teachers. I pray that he would tell about our doctrines and how we stayed firm to the faith. I pray that he would tell us about our obedience towards him. That we hate the deeds of evil men. That we be known for our patience and about our labor for him. But more than all that, I pray that we be known for our love for him. You know, oftentimes, married couples after 10, 25 years, 50 years sometimes, will renew their vows to remind each other of the vows that they made for one another, to renew that love that they once had for each other, to remind each other that I still love you as much as I did that first day when I said I do. And maybe today we need to renew our love for the Lord and rekindle a passionate love for him. May we renew our love today for the Lord in light of the abundant love that he has shown us and demonstrated while we were still sinners. And he loved us even unto death. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this letter that you've written to the church of Ephesus. We just thank you for just how you've given them so much encouragement. And Lord, we admit that oftentimes we do not love you as often as we should. And Lord, if we find ourselves in this situation where we have left our first love, Lord, I pray that we would 
remember where we have fallen, repent, and that we would do the first works. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who has not yet trusted you as their Lord and their Savior. I pray if they're here today, uncertain of where they stand with you, that they would choose to trust you, Lord, and experience what it is to have a love like yours. Lord, I pray that we would continue loving you and we would be known for our love for you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.